Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to The Sun Also Rises here on KPCGFM. On today's episode, remarkable feats of engineering. Projects that many of the loudest voices said couldn't be accomplished. But with ingenuity and perseverance, they were built, or are in the process of being built. Isaac Asimov, the American writer and biochemist, once said, Science can amuse and fascinate us all, but it is engineering that changes the world. And these projects that we're discussing today are about changing the world and enriching life for many people. We'll talk about a fascinating project now underway in China, and we'll discuss an engineering triumph in Japan that was completed back in the 1990s. But first, we'll begin the show in Scotland with a segment that is written and produced by Marie Tallis. It seems that every so often in life, we run into a problem that seems impossible to fix. Sometimes these problems seem so gigantic, it would be futile to even attempt to fix them. Or maybe we want to, but circumstances or other people around us convince us that there's just no use. It can't be done. Robert Stevenson was faced with an impossible challenge. Born in Scotland in 1772, Stevenson lost his father at a young age, but his mother remarried to Thomas Smith, an engineer. Although they were poor, he grew up in a strong religious household where moral improvement and technological progress went hand in hand. In 1797, he followed his stepfather's footsteps into civil engineering and joined the Northern Lighthouse Board, inspecting the few warning lights that were built along the Scottish coastline. Then, in 1799, the challenge was issued. On a cold night in December, storm clouds began brewing in the air above the northeast coast of England and Scotland. For three whole days, gigantic waves rolled through the ocean, tossing about the ships and vessels caught in the storm. There was nowhere to escape. Although the Firth of Forth, a bay in Scotland's River Forth nearby, might have provided a safe haven, no ship would dare try to reach it, because a quarter mile long reef loomed just under the surface. Bell Rock Reef was only visible during short periods of the day, and its sharp edges were so dangerous, many preferred to just wait out the storm on the open sea rather than try and traverse it. Over 70 vessels eventually succumbed to the storm's might, along with many of the sailors. But long before the storm of 1799, the dangerous reef was known to many sailors. Legend had it that in the 14th century, John Getty and his fellow monks had tried to prevent sailors from meeting their fate on the reef by sailing out to attach a bell that would ring constantly, pushed by the ocean waves, and warn the vessels. But only one year later, pirates stole the warning bell, but the name still stuck, Bell Rock Reef. For years, the reef remained a dangerous stretch, until the late 18th century, when the Northern Lighthouse Board was established. Despite the proliferation of lighthouses across the coast, Bell Rock was left untouched. As R.W. Munro stated in Scottish Lighthouses, to build a tower high enough to carry a warning light and stable enough to house three men to watch it on a rock 11 miles from land and buried 16 feet underwater twice every 24 hours in a sea much liable to storms was not a task to be lightly undertaken. It was considered by almost everyone to be too difficult a place to build a lighthouse. Almost everyone. For Stevenson, the challenge of building a lighthouse on Bell Rock would become an obsession. Stevenson became convinced that building a lighthouse on Bell Rock was achievable, but the idea seemed so impossible it took him a year to find anyone who was brave enough to even risk taking him to the reef in order to survey it. 
With his architect and friend, James Haldane, they were finally able to investigate in 1800. While sketching, the crew amassed nearly 101 kilos, or 222 pounds, of old metal. Hinges, door locks, ship's cabooses, cannonballs, a bayonet, they even found an anchor, a cabin stove, and crowbars. The survey proved that it was possible to build a lighthouse of stone on the reef. Another engineer by the name of Smeaton had already designed and implemented a method of building a stone lighthouse, which Stevenson knew could also be employed in this case as well. The Northern Lighthouse Board was not enthusiastic about the scale and the danger of the project. The lighthouse designed by Smeaton had actually been built above sea level and built under normal conditions, not on location. And this location that they were trying to build on was covered by nearly 16 feet of water at high tide and four feet at low. The new lighthouse on Bell Rock would have to be at least 20 feet higher and have a 40 foot wide base. That meant 2,500 tonnes of stone and an estimated cost of 42,000 British pounds. Impossible! Until 1804, when disaster struck again. The 64-gun man-of-war HMS York struck the reef and sunk, along with all 491 of its hands on board. Now there was more urgency. But Stevenson was young and untried. Many thought he couldn't handle the project. Finally, the board turned to John Rennie, one of the most well-known civil engineers in the country at the time. Rennie was impressed with Stevenson's design and materials, and two years later, in July 1806, the commissioners of the Northern Lighthouses were empowered by an act of parliament to construct a lighthouse at Bell Rock. Rennie was put in charge, with Stevenson as his assistant. Together, Rennie and Stevenson worked on the designs, but Rennie remained back with his own practice in London, while Stevenson began the job of organizing ships and supplies and sourcing materials. Rennie left much of the logistics and practical work to Stevenson, though he did make crucial changes to the design that ensured that the lighthouse survived the construction phase. August 17th, 1807, construction began. 35 artificers and Stevenson set sail for the reef. They would grow eventually to 60 workers. They were aboard the Pharos, the Smeaton, and the Joseph Banks vessels. The Pharos was 67 feet long, and it was to be permanently moored about a mile northwest of the building and sat as a temporary lighthouse. The Smeaton was to transport the giant Aberdeen granite blocks that were being cut and shaped on the mainland. Finally, the Joseph Banks would be the house for the construction crew to live in. The men could only work during the summer and for only two hours a day, each low tide. In between, they waited, constantly seasick, living a mile away on the ocean waves. It was hard, long and slow. The pickaxes needed sharpening frequently by the smithy, who often worked on his knees in freezing water. They couldn't use gunpowder, or they might damage the reef and compromise the foundation. Eventually, they were able to build a beacon house on the rock, where they could live without constantly sailing to and from the Bell Rock Reef. It took almost two hours to transport stone from quarry to lighthouse, and the men were often at risk. July 1809, a severe gale hit the coast. The Smeaton had to sail from mainland, but Stevenson was mainly concerned about the 11 artificers still stranded on the rock. They hadn't been able to leave before the winds had changed. The men took shelter in the temporary beacon house, but both those on the boat at sea and on the reef were buffeted by the seas and winds. It wasn't until 30 hours later that a relief boat managed to land with provisions for the men, including a tea kettle full of mulled port wine. Later that month, Michael Wishart, a principal builder, was caught underneath falling machinery. The movable beam crane had collapsed while positioning one of the stones. These were dire circumstances and the conditions were so horrible that some crewmen even decided to attempt a mutiny. 
but Stevenson pressed on. He and his men persevered, even when everyone else thought it was mad. And slowly but surely, every stone layer of the lighthouse began to rise from the ocean. Foot by foot, it inched out of the sea. 1810, July 17th. People had heard about the construction now. Visitors flocked to the spectacle, peering out to see the beacon house, the cranes, the connecting bridge that allowed the men to work on the lighthouse. By the 30th, the last of the stone courses that made up the structure had been laid. The lintel of the light room door was laid by Stevenson with due formality. May the great architect of the universe, under whose blessing this perilous work has prospered, preserve it as a guide to the mariner. But the work wasn't finished, and the seas didn't stop their relentless attack on both the fledgling lighthouse and the weary crew. October 16th, tragedy struck again. Charles Henderson, one of the young smiths, was traveling from their makeshift home on the reef to the lighthouse when he slipped. Falling into the roiling seas, he drowned, and the men were cast into a deep gloom. It was no easy task to induce them to remain at their work. Stevenson wrote, as the weather now becomes more boisterous and the nights long, they found their habitation extremely cheerless. While the winds were howling about their ears and the waves lashing with fury against the beams of their insulated habitation. Though the storms never stopped raging and the work never became easier, Stevenson continued to build. The balcony was installed, the parapets, the reflectors, the final pieces were coming together until finally, February 1811 light shone out from Bell Rock. It had taken four long years, cost the lives of five men, included a workforce of nearly 110 men in total, and had taken 2,835 rocks to complete. But there was a lighthouse to warn the sailors of the Scottish coasts. And today it still stands a lone tower still considered too dangerous to visit. Stevenson could see that there was a way to build a lighthouse and he was determined to find it. Stevenson didn't just blindly jump in. He surveyed, he studied, he used a team of highly trusted men and together they were able to protect the lives of hundreds of sailors who would come to sail by those coasts. Obstacles take a lot of work. They take a lot of help and a lot of perseverance to overcome. But just like the lighthouse, an impossible task can become possible. Bell Rock Lighthouse was completed in 1811, as Marie said there. And even though that was more than 200 years ago, this incredible feat of engineering has not required any repairs and hasn't needed any additional stonework. The masonry stands precisely as Robert Stevenson planned and completed it. So that's a real testimony to his meticulousness and effectiveness as a craftsman. And just a little trivia tidbit for you. Robert Stevenson's work at the Bell Rock Lighthouse was so inspiring to his own family that three of his sons ended up going into lighthouse engineering after him. And then Robert's grandson, who is also named Robert, intended to follow in his footsteps and become an engineer, but his health compelled him to instead go into writing. His name was Robert Louis Stevenson, most famous for the book Treasure Island. 
For the next story, we're going to travel almost 6,000 miles away from the Firth of Forth there in Scotland, and we'll go to an artificial island off the coast of Japan. This segment is written and produced by Grant Turgeon. In the mid-1980s, the Itamai Airport in Osaka, Japan, struggled to meet the flying needs of the densely populated Kansai region. Hemmed in by urban development, the airport couldn't possibly expand. Desperate for a solution, airport authorities devised a plan that was truly unique. They decided to build an artificial island in Osaka Bay, and then construct the world's longest airport on top of that island. As difficult as that plan sounds, the details made it all the more daunting. 60 feet below the water's surface, a bed of alluvial clay proved problematic for engineers. Because the clay retained moisture and would cause the island built on top of it to sink rapidly, the engineers plunged 1.2 million cylindrical tubes deep within the clay and injected them with millions of tons of sand before removing the cylinders. The resultant sand columns served as drains to the surrounding clay, keeping the foundation of the island from being oversaturated with moisture. With the seabed now stabilized, 48,000 concrete tetrahedrons were stacked on top of it to form a solid foundation. A tetrahedron looks like a tripod with a fourth leg sticking upward. Each of these particular tetrahedrons weighs 200 tons. On top of the clay and sand column base, and in between the 48,000 tetrahedrons, construction workers dumped 178 million cubic tons of earth. With the 2.5 by 1.6 mile artificial island finally completed, airport facilities were erected. After seven years of construction, the Kansai International Airport opened its doors in 1994. Designed by Italian architect Henzo Piano, this airport is widely considered an architectural marvel of the 20th century. The terminal features a passive air conditioning system designed to save on heating and cooling costs. Blade-like panels along the roof and wall channel the air efficiently throughout the building, keeping the temperature between 68 to 79 degrees. Connecting the artificial island to mainland Japan is a 12,300-foot truss bridge, the longest such bridge with triangular load-bearing structures in the world. In estimating how much the island would sink over time, engineers made a grave error. Whereas they predicted just 19 feet of sinking, the island has already sunk close to 50 feet. However, through the use of innovative stabilizing techniques, engineers have reduced the annual rate of sinking to about a tenth of the previous alarming pace. Today, Kansai International Airport services close to 1,000 flights daily. It is a testament to the sky-high creative capacity of the human mind. The sky-high creative capacity of the human mind. That's a great way to phrase that. And Kansai International Airport truly does demonstrate that capacity. Well, we'll take a quick break now. And when we come back, we'll hop across the East China Sea to take a look at one final marvel of engineering.
Hello and welcome back to The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. Don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter. Our handle is at T-S-A-R underscore radio show. And you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and on thetrumpet.com. If you have questions or comments, we always love hearing from you. Our email address is T-S-A-R at kpcg.fm. Well, in the first half of the show, we discussed a remarkable lighthouse in Scotland and an engineering marvel in Japan. And for this last segment, we'll take a look at Liuzhou, China, and a very inspiring engineering project that is being built there. Many listeners have probably heard about the pollution problems that China is facing. I was visiting Beijing in July just for a short vacation, and we were grateful to have mostly clear and clean air for the entirety of our stay. But the city does suffer through stretches of stifling air pollution, days and days of thick, light-blocking haze. My wife and I saw many of the residents of Beijing wearing pollution masks as they would walk through the city, even on these mostly clear days, just to try to protect their lungs from prolonged exposure to air pollution. And it's the same in many parts of China. The Chinese Ministry of Environmental Protection released a report recently saying that in 265 of China's 338 major cities, the air quality fails to meet health standards. So this is a serious problem. But the Chinese leadership acknowledge it, and they say that they're determined to turn it around. China is a latecomer to industrialization. Britain was the first industrialized country. The British started the process in the late 1700s, and they were considered industrial by about the year 1850. So Britain was the first, and then by about 1900, the countries of Western Europe and the United States and Japan had also arrived as industrial powers. And that meant that these countries all went through some decades of fairly reckless polluting. With early industry in these countries, there was not a lot of environmental conscientiousness or good stewardship, but there was a lot of unregulated coal burning and rapid deforestation and all kinds of other short-sighted economic activity. And the result was some pretty insufferable pollution. Herbert W. Armstrong was the editor-in-chief of the Plain Truth magazine, and in the issue from August-September 1970, he wrote about the terrible pollution in the United States at that time. He said, quote, Man's recent knowledge production has brought us millions of automobiles, giant factories, and thousands of new luxury items, and at the same time, the production of these inventions is polluting our air. It is man's increased knowledge that is ultimately producing air pollution, water pollution, food pollution, garbage, and waste pollution. End quote. And around that same time, another article in Mr. Armstrong's Plain Truth magazine said, quote, The United States, the most industrialized of all nations, has the worst problem of all with pollution. Fully 25% of the U.S. population now lives in areas suffering from major air pollution problems. End quote. So it was a grim situation for the U.S., especially around the 1960s and 70s. In New York City, the air was so dirty you often couldn't see the city's iconic bridges and buildings through it. 
And then many of America's harbors, rivers, and streams were unsafe for swimming or fishing because of toxic pollution and raw sewage. Those who lived through those decades can attest to just how visibly soiled much of the country was, and Mr. Armstrong was very concerned about it. He wrote about these problems on several occasions. In the early 1970s, regulations were put into place on U.S. industry. Companies were told that the maximization of profits could no longer be their only priority. They were told they had to operate more cleanly, and they had to develop and use pollution control technologies. Emissions from cars had to be reduced by combining cleaner fuels with cleaner engine technology. And the Clean Water Act of 1972 made it illegal to discharge pollutants from point sources into navigable waters. And this act also provided billions of dollars in grants to help people build and upgrade sewage treatment works all across the country. And then around this same time, a lot of effort and money was invested into reforestation projects and forest conservation initiatives. And it all made a big difference. From 1970 to about 2015, America's emissions of six of the most common air pollutants dropped by an average of 70% each. The total net forest area in the U.S. increased during that time by about 3.3%, which means millions of acres of forest were added. And those big improvements happened during a time when America's population added about 100 million people. And it was during a time when America's GDP, or its gross domestic product, grew by about 250%. So economic activity was soaring, but it was being done in a way that tried to minimize pollution. Of course, these initiatives have not fixed all the pollution and environmental problems. Not by any means. And in some sectors, the regulations are imbalanced. But these efforts have added up to make a significant difference for the United States. And then Japan and the UK and the nations of Western Europe all had to face a similar day of reckoning at some point in their industrialization process. They had to realize that if their industry continued to chug along full steam ahead with no regard for the future, then big parts of their countries would soon be basically too polluted to live in. So China, as I mentioned, was a latecomer to industrialization they didn't even really begin to industrialize until the mid-1950s. And they are now facing the same kind of day of reckoning about their pollution. Right now, 16 of the world's 20 most polluted cities are in China. And 1.1 million Chinese people each year die as a result of the uh, air pollution there. So it's a serious and a tragic problem. And it's also worth noting that China doesn't really deserve a pass for its pollution. You know, they, they had seen what the UK and the US and others had gone through. And so unlike those industrial pioneers, China knew full well what the results would be of recklessly driving toward industrialization without concern for the environment. So being latecomers, they really should have done things differently from the beginning. They had, they had no excuse. But instead of learning from the mistakes of those other nations, China just repeated them, and on a larger scale. 
The good news is, though, that China is now trying to turn this around. Dozens of laws have been passed to regulate industrial activity, and authorities are beginning to get serious about enforcing those laws. In 2017, almost 40% of all Chinese factories were temporarily shut down at some point by safety inspectors until they could meet standards. China's also investing in renewable energies like solar and wind and hydropower at a staggering pace. Last year alone, China's total investment in clean energy projects came to more than $44 billion, which makes it the world's biggest spender on renewable energy. In their cities, the Chinese are encouraging residents to install solar panels on their rooftops and to make rooftop gardens. From our hotel in Beijing, uh, it was amazing how many rooftop gardens and solar panels we were able to see. Really, on just about every roof we could see, there were either panels or a garden or both. And now the Chinese are building an entire city that is covered with gardens and trees and integrated with nature. This is in Liuzhou in southern China, and there will be a total of 70 buildings in this new city, all cascading with foliage. The city will be home to 30,000 people, and it will cover about 340 acres. 40,000 trees and close to a million plants will be incorporated into the cityscape. That's enough to absorb around 10,000 tons of carbon dioxide and 57 tons of pollutants each year. And all this vegetation will neutralize the city's pollution. And at the same time, it will produce about 900 tons of life-giving oxygen each year. It requires quite a lot of innovation to cover all the homes, hotels, schools, and offices, and everything else with plants and trees. Everything has to be built with root barriers so that the roots don't overtake sidewalks and grow through the rooftops. And you have to consider also the, uh, the number of insects and other animals that will want to make their home with the people there in this forest city. But Italian architect Stefano Boeri has experience with all of those kinds of issues. He's the designer of this forest city in Liuzhou, and Boeri brings quite a bit of experience to the project. He's had success making forest-covered buildings in his home country, Italy. And so he's, he's really become the go-to guy for these kinds of environmentally friendly architecture projects. Boeri says the forest city in Liuzhou can act as a blueprint for the future of urban China. So it is inspiring to see this kind of initiative being undertaken, but we also know that the problem of polluted cities will never be entirely solved by human beings. Mr. Armstrong wrote a powerful booklet in 1979 called The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, and it's a really inspiring read because it discusses the ultimate and complete solution to the problem of environmental destruction. And Mr. Armstrong makes clear that it will only be completely solved by divine intervention. He writes, quote, The living Christ is coming in all the power and glory of Almighty God as King of kings and Lord of lords to establish God's world-ruling government 
over all nations. Air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution will be gone. Crystal pure water to drink, clean, crisp, pure air to breathe. Rich black soil, where deserts, mountains, and seas formerly were, producing full-flavored foods and fantastic beauty in flowers, shrubs, and trees. And then the very last line of this booklet says, What a fabulous picture. In this booklet, Mr. Armstrong uses dozens, maybe hundreds, of Bible passages to show that all of mankind's problems, not just the environmental ones, but everything from broken families and war to disease and religious confusion, everything will finally and completely be solved under this perfect government. Mr. Armstrong makes a a very compelling case that Job from the Bible will be in charge of the kinds of engineering projects that we've discussed in this episode. He says, quote, Surely no man who ever lived could equal Job as an engineer over vast, stupendous world projects. Indication is strong that Job will be director of worldwide urban renewal, rebuilding the waste places and the destroyed cities, not as they are now, but according to God's pattern. Vast engineering projects, such as dams and power plants. End quote. If you've not read this booklet, The Wonderful World Tomorrow, I would encourage you to go to thetrumpet.com and order a free copy. Well, that brings us to the end of the show today. We really appreciate you tuning in. And I would also like to thank Marie Tallis and Grant Turgeon for their contributions to this episode. And we'll leave you today with a quote from the English engineer and car designer, Sir Henry Royce. He said, Strive for perfection in everything you do. Take the best that exists and make it better. When it does not exist, design it. 